0: Good morning, Journey. So we are four weeks away from Easter today as we speak, and I am really excited for Easter Journey this year for three reasons. One, I love Easter every year just because it's a time for our whole world to stop and really recognize and celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead too, because at our church, we work really hard to make Easter a service. You can bring friends to who don't know Jesus, or maybe who are away from Jesus. And our whole purpose at Easter is not just to celebrate the resurrection, but to really give a clear invitation of who Jesus is, how to follow Jesus and give people an opportunity to respond. And we've seen God honor that and bless that in the last few years in a really, really big way. But I think the reason I'm most excited is because of this month, And what we're going to learn this month about Easter that hopefully will help you learn who Jesus is more than you've ever known who Jesus is in your life and will help you follow Jesus more than you've ever followed Jesus in your life. We're in a series called The Lamb. In the next four weeks, we're going to look at Jesus as the Lamb of God throughout the Old Testament. This week, we're going to look at Jesus as the first Lamb of God. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus as the daily Lamb of God. In three weeks, we'll look at Jesus as the Lamb from the Day of Atonement. And then on Palm Sunday, we'll look at Jesus as the Lamb of the peace offering. And I think by understanding who Jesus came to be and what Jesus came to do, you'll find yourself at the end of this month having more of an understanding of what Easter is than you've ever had before, and hopefully knowing who Jesus is better than you've ever known him. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter one. That's where we'll be. Pull out the notes inside your bulletin or fire up your journey church international app. Everything on the screen will be downloaded on your phone. You can take notes and email it to yourself when you're done, because we are going to try this month to make sense of Easter, but we're going to begin with an introduction from John. Now, who is John just for a little history? John was the brother of James He was one of the first four disciples that Jesus called. Remember, he called two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And James was one of the three disciples in Jesus' inner circle. Often, Jesus would take three away from the 12 and kind of confide in him John was one of those. John was the youngest of Jesus' disciples. Most scholars believe John became a disciple at 14 or 15 If you can think of a 14 or 15 year old, it's amazing that anything spiritually happened after Jesus left, because that's pretty young. Most people think John may have been between 17 and 18 when Jesus died, but that also made him the longest living of Jesus disciples, not just because of his age, but because of God's providence on his life so that he could write this book that bears his name, that introduces us to Jesus in such a unique way. Four men wrote books about the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called in theology, the synoptic gospels. If you think of the word synonym, it means the same. 90% of the content in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's books are the same. John wrote his book about 50 years after they did, which means he would have read them all. And after reading them, he would have thought they left some stuff out. So 90% of the book of John is different than anything else that was written about Jesus because one of his closest friends, his longest living friends, wanted to introduce us to the Jesus that maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke left out a little bit. So we see John introducing us to Jesus in a very unique way. And here's what's hard to understand about this. John quotes John who introduces to Jesus. John the apostle who wrote the book is going to quote John the Baptist. He was Jesus' cousin, six months older than Jesus. John the apostle is going to quote what John the Baptist said about Jesus when he introduced him to the world. And here's how John wanted you to meet Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 29. Only one verse today. Here's what it says. The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's read it again. If you have your pen, I want you to circle or underline or highlight it. If you're following along on your phone, the next day, John, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God. I want you to circle that phrase, the Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, everyone who was there that day would have understood the magnitude of this statement. Look, It's the lamb of God because John was talking to, we know his crowd included the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin. You say, who is that? Basically the government elite of their day. This would have been the Washington DC elite, the Democrats or Republicans. They were trying to figure out what was going on. So they went to hear John whose job was to tell people Jesus is coming and they were there that day. And John introduces Jesus with the biggest statement that he could possibly make to those who would understand it. He said, look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They all understood what that meant, which is why many of them followed him every day for the next three years, because if he was really that, he was the most important person who ever lived. But a lot of us don't understand Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's what I want to tell you. If you don't understand that statement about Jesus, you'll never understand Jesus like John understood Jesus. And if you don't understand Jesus like his disciples understood him, you'll never really be able to follow him the way that God wants you to. So until we understand Jesus' role as the Lamb of God, we can't fully grasp Christianity. Can we be Christians? Yes. Can we love Jesus? Yes. Can we experience the forgiveness of Jesus? Yes. But John is telling us until we understand Jesus' role as the Lamb of God, we can't really fully understand Christianity. You say, why? Because the Bible says you have been created in the image of God. You. You have been created in the image of God. What does the image of God look like in humanity? Jesus. Jesus. So if you want to see what your life looks like at its fullest, you have to really know who Jesus is so you can figure out how to become more like him. Why is this important to be more like Jesus? Because our goal this year for the people in our church, for those of you visiting is this. We want you to experience times of refreshment spiritually this year. The Apostle Peter said in Acts 3:19 his second message to the Christian church. He said when you follow Jesus, your life experiences times of refreshment. So we said this year we want people to experience times of refreshment. And then we said what is keeping people from really just being refreshed spiritually? We said crazy busy schedule. So we taught on in January distraction. We said struggling finances. So we taught in February on finances. We'll look at March and April and just people who are drifting spiritually. You know, people just started to drift. We'll talk about that in April. Some people say the reason I don't feel refreshed spiritually, is because I've got a really dysfunctional family. I've got some dysfunctional relationships in my family. We're going to talk about that in May. Some of you say, I work at a horrible job. We have a toxic work environment. My boss is crazy. We're going to talk about that this summer. You say, I just don't know my purpose. I don't know what God wants me to do. We're going to talk about that this fall. You say, I just feel too weak to ever do what I hear you say Christians should be doing. We're going to talk about that later in the fall. See, this year, every Sunday is geared to helping you experience more of life by experiencing more of Jesus. Because here's what you need to understand. A good understanding of Jesus will give you the best understanding of yourself. You were made in the image of God, to be connected to God, to live your fullest life with God. The way we learn how to do that is by looking at Jesus. He is the image of God in human flesh. The more we understand Jesus, the more we understand what our best life looks like. So let me introduce Jesus to you one more time. He is the Lamb of God, according to John the Baptist, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in order to understand Jesus as the Lamb of God, we have to understand the first lamb of God. So today we're going to go back to scripture and we're going to see the first lamb of God that we ever really see in the story of those who follow God. Because to understand Jesus as a lamb of God, we've got to understand the first lamb of God and the story of Israel's lamb of God actually begins in Africa. We're going to have to jump back through time and we're going to have to travel around the globe a little bit this morning to understand who Jesus is. The story of Israel's lamb of God begins in Africa, Egypt, to be specific. So we're going to have to go back in time 3,500 years to Africa to figure out what happened 2,000 years ago in Israel to figure out how Jesus wants to impact our life today in Kansas City. Let me say that again. We've got to go 3,500 years ago to Africa to understand 2,000 years ago in Israel to get tomorrow and today in your heart spiritually. And to do that, we've got to understand the plagues we got to understand the distinction within the plagues, and we've got to understand the choice that God has given us. So let's start with the plagues. Let's start with the plagues. Number one, let's look at the plagues. In order to understand Jesus as the Lamb of God, we have to understand the first Lamb of God. And we can't understand the first Lamb of God until we understand the plagues. So let's set the context. The people of Israel have been in slavery in Egypt for more than 400 years, and they finally say, God, help us. 400 years they've been in slavery, and they said, God, help us. So God says, okay, And he calls a leader out of the people. His name is Moses. He tells Moses, you can get your brother Aaron to help you. And I'm going to send you guys to the king of Egypt, equipped with the power of God through 10 plagues that will kind of come against Egypt. And Pharaoh, at the end of these, is going to let the Israelites go back home. Their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were all from a land called Canaan. And God said, it's time to go home. So God sent Moses and Aaron to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And when we look at the plagues in Egypt, we find they had a twofold purpose, one that I think is maybe a little less significant to you and I, and one that's very significant to those of us today who are trying to follow Jesus. What was the purpose of the plagues in Egypt? The less significant one, in my opinion, was to prove to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt that the God of Israel was more powerful than their false gods. They worshiped stuff rather than people who created, them. they worshiped the Nile River. That was one of their gods because it provided water for their land. And God said, "No, don't worship the Nile." So He would turn the Nile to blood. They worshipped frogs. I haven't been able to find out historically why. I just know God gave them so many that they said, "We don't want to worship frogs anymore." They worshipped the sun. It's really what they were known for. They were able to make hard brick in Israel because of the hot uh, in Egypt because of the hot sun that they could send all over the world in commerce. So God blotted out the sun for a few days. They worshipped their livestock because it gave them food to eat. So God cursed the livestock and they worshiped the king's firstborn son because the king of Egypt was to believe to be a God. And the son of the king of Egypt was believed to be a God. So God said, no, 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 I'm going to show you what a real God is. So the plagues were really against the gods of Egypt, but I believe that's the less significant purpose of the plagues. For me, purpose number two, the more significant purpose of the plagues was to prove to the people of Israel that their God was worth trusting. It was to prove to the people of Israel that their God was worth following. It was to prove to the people of Israel that their God was worth worshipping. Because they didn't know that at the time. You've got to remember the people of Israel at this time had no formal written revelation from God or about God. At this time in Israel's history, no Ten Commandments. They wouldn't have those for another almost probably five or ten years. No prophets, no priests. They wouldn't have known about anybody, prophets or priests, they had no place of worship. There was no tabernacle. There was no temple, which was a good thing because they had no standards of worship. God hadn't told them, here's how I want you to worship me. They didn't even have any names or attributes of their God, which is why when God spoke to Moses and said, tell Pharaoh, I said to let people go. Moses said, who, like, who should I tell him is sending me? I don't even know your name. We're not, we're not really even aware of who you are. We know Abraham had a God that he worshiped, but it's been a long time since we've heard from this God and Genesis 1-1 hadn't even been written yet. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was no recorded spiritual history at this time. So God brings the plagues to prove to the people of Israel that he's real, that he's worth trusting and following and worshiping. But the people of Israel at this time, they'd seen 400 years pass since the last meaningful interaction between an Israelite, Jacob, whose name was changed Israel, and his son Joseph in God. I want you to think about that. It had been 400 years since God, through divine revelation, had spoke to anyone and said, here's who I am. Here's what I want you to do. 400 years. You say, how long ago was that? This July 4th, America will turn 242 years old. Add another 160. Let's pretend George Washington is the last guy God has said anything to. And imagine where we would be spiritually 160 years from now if we had no Bible, no scripture, no churches, no worship songs, no preachers, no teachers... We just heard that God spoke to a guy named George 400 years ago. Like, there was a disconnect between Israel and God. And and here's what the people of Israel at this time needed they needed a God, they just didn't know much about Him. And maybe that's you this month. Maybe you've come to Journey because you need God, you just don't know anything about Him, and you want to figure out if He can help you because your marriage is struggling, your kids are struggling, your health is struggling. The health of a friend is struggling. You hate your job. You're trying to figure out if you can keep doing life the next 30 years. Maybe you need God. You just don't know much about him. If that's you, you're in the perfect spot because we're going to talk about Jesus all month long. God sent the plagues to prove to the people of Israel that they had a God worth trusting and following and worshiping. But what a weird way to say, hey, I'm God, right? I mean, the plagues would have been an interesting introduction to a God you didn't know much about. When Moses said, God's going to show up, what's he going to do? He's going to destroy everything. Like that would have been an interesting, it's like, well, why would we want to follow him? Right? I mean, Israel's first introduction to God is a God who turns the rivers to blood, who brings an annoying amount of frogs on the land, who sends gnats to bother everyone and flies to destroy things, who kills all the livestock, gives people boil, sends hail that ruins everything in the fields. Sends locusts to eat everything that the hail doesn't destroy. Sends a plague of darkness that totally blots out the sun. And then sends a plague of death on the firstborn of everyone in the land. That would be an interesting introduction to, hi, I'm God. Look what I can do. Like that certainly would have introduced people to a God that would be feared. Maybe it would have introduced Israel to a God who, I mean, who was worth knowing because he was pretty powerful. Definitely bigger than the gods of Egypt but it wouldn't be the plagues that won the heart of Israel. It would be what happened during the plagues that made the people of Israel think this is a God who I wanna be close to. It would be what happened during the plagues who would make the people of Israel think this is a God I wanna worship. It would be what happened during the plagues that would make the people think this is a God I wanna follow. See, the plagues are important, but not without number two, the distinction. You see, we can't understand what it means to have Jesus as the Lamb of God unless we understand the first Lamb of God. And we can't understand the first Lamb of God until we understand the plagues, but the plagues aren't going to make any sense to us in relation to Jesus without the distinction. You say, what do you mean, the distinction? I mean this beginning with plague number four, the plague of the flies. And continuing for plagues number five, livestock. Plagues number seven, the plague of hail; Plague number nine, the plague of darkness. Beginning with plague number four and continuing with plagues five, seven, and nine, the people of Israel didn't suffer through the plagues. They were exempt. They didn't have to go through them. And here's why this was. God wasn't just trying to blow the people of Israel away with his power. He was trying to draw them in with his love. He was trying to draw them in with his grace. What is grace? It's undeserved favor. We're going to find the people of Israel didn't ask for a distinction. The people of Israel didn't earn a distinction. The people of Israel didn't deserve a distinction. But God said, my goal is not just to impress you with my power. My goal is to impress upon you my love for you. To help you understand that you're special to me and you're unique to me. So beginning with plague number four, the flies. Moses went to Pharaoh, and here's what he said to Pharaoh in Exodus 8.23. He said, with this plague, I'm going to make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign is going to occur tomorrow. And the same thing would happen for plagues 5, 7, and 9. God says, I don't just want to impress them with my power. I want to impress upon them how much I love them. I want them to know they're different because they're mine. I want them to know that I know them and I care about them and I'm going to help them because they're mine. The people of Israel didn't ask for a distinction, earn a distinction, but they saw the distinction and their questions began to change. I mean, when Moses first showed up and said, hey, you pray, God answered. He says, we're going to go home. And he went to Pharaoh and said, God said, you got to let my people go. Pharaoh said, yeah, right. And he told the taskmasters, double their workload, but don't give him any extra supplies. And the people came back to Moses and said, why is God doing this to us? Why is God causing problems like this? You and God go away. Why is God doing this to us? But by the time they get to plague four and five and seven, the question changes. They've stopped asking, why is God doing this? and they started asking, what is God doing in this? They stopped asking, why is God doing? They quit looking at their problems through the lens of why. And all of a sudden they started looking through their problems through the lens of what is God trying to do in this? Even in our problems, 400 years of slavery, and now these devastating plagues, they're beginning to see a distinction between them and the people of Egypt. And they're saying, wait a minute, we don't understand all this but it appears as if God, even in the midst of all our problems, is moving on our behalf. And it's interesting, when you study the story even one level deeper, you're going to find that God didn't just distinguish Israel as his. He actually positioned them for his promise. He wasn't just showing them, you're mine, I know you. He was showing them, I, I allow you to live on the edge of promise if you'll follow me. You know, when you go back 400 years before all of this happened, you see a man named Jacob with his family moving down to be with his second youngest son, a man named Joseph, who works for the the king of Egypt. Um, And Joseph tells his dad, listen, Pharaoh wants to meet you. And when Pharaoh meets you, he's going to ask what our occupation is. Tell him we're shepherds. Tell him we're farmers. Tell him we work with the animals because those type of people are detestable to the Egyptians. And he'll let you live in Goshen. That's where we want to be. Show the map if you would. So for 400 years, the people of Israel had lived in Egypt, but they had lived in Goshen. They had lived in northeast Egypt. Pharaoh told Jacob, you guys can live anywhere in Egypt that you want to, but we would prefer you live in Goshen. And Jacob says, great. Why is that important? Because Goshen is the spot in Egypt that is closest to the promised land. And when God knew it would be time for Israel to go, he wanted them living right on the border between their problems and their promise. And if you're in here today and you are a follower of Jesus, no matter how deep your problem is, if you're in here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you never get further away from the boundary of the promise than your problem. God always allows your problem to be right on the boundary of his promise. And if you will begin to follow him, you'll begin to see God move on your behalf. I believe that with all my heart. So it's interesting, even in our problems, God positions us for quick access to the promise if we'll trust him and if we'll follow him and if we'll just begin to walk forward in faith, we'll begin to see God moving. So what problems are you facing right now? What problems are you facing in your marriage? Are you just doing everything God has told you to do in faith and walking towards the promise? What problems are you facing in your parenting? Are you just doing everything God told you to do to move forward in your faith and just trusting long-term God will work things out? What problems are you facing in your finances? Are you just walking where God has told you to walk and trusting that everything will work out? Because we learn from this story that God allows us to live even in our problems right on the boundary of the promise. And if we'll just follow him, we'll begin to see him move on our behalf. You see, Israel and Egypt were both having problems. They were both experiencing the plagues at first, but the distinction between Israel's problems and Egypt's problems was that Israel had a God who knew, who cared, and who was gonna do something about it. And if you're a Christian in here today, the thing that distinguishes Christians when we have problems in our life is our belief that Jesus knows, that he cares, and that he's doing something about it. Paul said, even in death, we don't lose hope because we believe that Jesus knows that he cares and that he's doing something about it. And we just keep walking towards the promise. See, Israel was beginning to realize because of the distinction that they lived on the border between their problems and their promises. And if they would just follow God, they would see the promise unfold. The distinction began to happen in plague number four. It made them change their question from why is God doing this to, what is God doing here? And that question would be important when they got to plague number 10 because we see that they would have number three, the choice. They would have the choice that would determine whether or not they were going to follow God or remain in slavery. So you, in order to understand Jesus as the Lamb of God, we have to understand the first Lamb of God. And you can't understand the first Lamb of God without understanding the plagues and you can't really truly understand the theology of the plagues without understanding the distinction And the distinction really comes to a head at plague number 10. For the first time, the Israelites were invited into the process of their deliverance in plague number 10. It was the very first time. It was the very first time God said, here's what's going to happen, but you have a choice. And here was the plague. The plague was the death of the firstborn. Now it was targeted towards the son of the Pharaoh who the people of Egypt believed was was God. So God said, I'm going to show them that man is not God. But in the course of this plague, every firstborn in the country, person and animal, every firstborn is going to die. How many of you in here by show of hands, I'm just curious, are the firstborn in your family? Would you raise your hand? Okay. You're all dead. Um, Now, how many of you who are parents have an oldest child? Would you raise your hand? Okay. They're, they're all dead. How many of you who have parents who have a mom or a dad who is maybe the oldest in their family. They're all dead. How many of you have a pet who might be the first in the litter? They're dead. For some of you, it's the first time you even got sad today when I said it, it's like, (laughs) mom, dad, brother. It's like, okay. No, like, listen, everyone's losing somebody. Everyone is losing somebody. Every firstborn person and animal of every generation is gonna die, listen, unless they don't want to. And then God said, you can have a choice. Like here's the plague, every firstborn person of every generation and all the animals are going to die unless you don't want to. I'm actually going to give you the choice on this one. And for the first time in plague number 10, they have a choice. They know what the plague is and they have a choice of whether or not they want to undergo it. So all of us who just raised our hand would say, I'm not sure what plan B is, but I'll take it. If it's available, I'll take it. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip back to Exodus chapter 12. If not, it'll be on the screen. It's on the app if you're following along on the app. In Exodus 12, we we see a choice. The Israelites were offered a rescue that had four very distinct parts. We're trying to understand Jesus as the Lamb of God. To do that, we have to understand the first Lamb of God. We get introduced in Exodus chapter 12. The plague of the firstborn is coming unless you don't want it to. Then here's what you can do. What are the parts of it? Part number one. You can sacrifice a perfect lamb. You don't want the firstborn to go. You can sacrifice a perfect lamb. Here's the instructions, Exodus 12, verse 3. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb. You can circle. It's the first time Israel was instructed to take a lamb to do anything as a nation. This is the first lamb of God. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household, If any household's too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year old males without defect. And you may take care of them. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Circle that word twilight, not because it's a cool movie with vampires, but because I'm going to teach you something spiritual about it in just a second. Twilight. The Israelites were said, here's the plague that's coming, but you don't have to do it. Well, what do we have to do? God says, I need you to, to sacrifice a perfect lamb. Now, why is this a sacrifice? Don't think in terms of because religious symbolism is sacrifice. They didn't have that then. Why is it a sacrifice? Because Israel, a generation of slaves, for the first time in their life is leaving their host home who's fed them. They're going to be traveling around the desert where they don't know if they have any food or any water. So God says, before you go, I want you to actually make your very best meal. And I want you to, to eat it before you go and to give a portion of it to me. That would be a sacrifice to say, Hey, we've just got a few things here to put in the cooler before we leave for our trip. And God says, no, I want you actually the very best one, the biggest amount of food why don't you eat that one before you go and just trust me? That would have been a sacrifice, but it's better than losing the firstborn. So people of Israel said, okay, um, what's next? The Israelites were offered a rescue if they would sacrifice a perfect lamb. But then there's a second part of that. God said, after you sacrifice the lamb, you're gonna take the blood from that lamb and you're gonna put it as a sign on your door. Part two would be the sign of blood on the door. Here's what this would symbolize, that you were aware of the options and you chose a substitute. God said the firstborn of all the kingdom is going to die today unless you don't want to. And if you've chosen a substitute, let me know. It's really important. I need to know. So God says in verse 7, let's start in verse 6 again. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Right before the sun goes down. Then they are to take some of the blood. And they are to put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. God said, you can choose for a substitute to die. It can be a lamb, but you got to let me know. So every house in Israel would have looked like this, right? They kill the lambs. They're instructed to drain the blood and to put it in a bowl. They were instructed not to get a little paintbrush, but some real thick weeds. And they were instructed. Here's how God says, I need to know if you're choosing a sacrifice. If you are, I want you to take... The blood, and I want you to paint the sides of your doorway with the blood, and I want you to paint the top of the doorway with the blood. It's really important for me that I know you're choosing plan B. If you are going the substitute route, if the lamb dies instead of the firstborn, let me know just what I need the houses to look like. You can imagine the ghetto that these Israeli slaves lived in in Egypt in all of the doorways that would have looked like someone saying, we choose a substitute. All right Tonight, all the firstborn die. Not us, we, we did the lamb thing. We killed the perfect lamb. Here's our sign. We trust the substitute. Now what do we do? Part three. God says, if you're really gonna follow me, he gives them a direction followed by an action. He says, you need to take cover under the protection of the substitute. If you've really chosen the substitute. I need you to take cover under the protection of the substitute. So look what God says in verses 12 and 13 of Exodus 12. God says on that same night, or they've, they've slaughtered the blood. If they've chosen a substitute, now they got to show it. God says that same night, I'm going to pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Some of you have heard of friends that have celebrated Passover your entire life. You didn't even understand what that meant until now. God said, put the blood on the door, go inside. I'm going to pass over and the blood is going to be your symbol to me. Hey, we've chosen the substitute. All of our firstborn, the animals, the parents, the grandparents, the kids, the grandkids, they're all inside. When you pass over, we want you to see we have chosen the substitute. Now here's the important thing that you need to see here. God didn't say, I want you to learn this. God didn't say, I want you to memorize this. God said, I didn't want, you, God didn't say, I want you to know this. God said, I want you to do this. I want you to go put the blood on the doorway and then I want you to live under the blood of the lamb. Why? Because of the part number four of the plan. God said, here's why this is important. Because this is a position that results in life and peace with God if you'll remain inside of it. This is a position covered by the blood, trusting God. This is the position that results in life and peace with God. Remain inside. Remain in the protection and under the direction of God. You see, where we get this wrong so much in modern Christianity is is we think this. We think following Jesus is a step that you take at some point in life. But listen, following Jesus is not a step you take. It's a place you stay. Following Jesus is not a decision that you made. It's like a past tense. It's a decision that you make every day to choose to live under the protection and the direction of the substitute whose life was taken in your place. That is what Christianity is. So this is what a life of relationship and worship looks like. Remaining in the protection under the direction of the Lord. So when we come to church on Sunday and we worship, we're stepping into the doorway of Passover. When we open our Bibles and we learn from the teaching of God's word, we're stepping into the doorway. When we read our Bible on a daily basis, we're stepping into the doorway. When we listen to worship music on the way to work and back, we're stepping into the doorway. When we go to small group and talk about what Jesus is doing in our life, we're stepping into the doorway and we're remaining under the protection and the direction of our God. Sadly, so many Christians think that Christianity is like a It's like a game of tag. And it's like, okay, I got that. Now I'm going to move on with my life. And God says, no, 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 no. Christianity is about remaining inside. Jesus would say in John 15, if I remain in you and you remain in me, if we stay together, he said, you're going to bear a lot of fruit and it's going to last. See, Christianity is not something you pass through on the way to the rest of your life. It's a place you remain because I'm trusting the substitute and what the lamb did for me, I'm now gonna live under his direction and under his protection every day. I'm gonna live a life of worship under the lamb of God. His name is Jesus. And John the Baptist introduced him this way. Look, there he is. It's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world if they want him to. You see, in order to understand Jesus is the lamb of God. We have to understand the first lamb of God. But when we look at the first lamb of God and we look at Jesus, it's like, that's him, right? I mean, Jesus is the only thing that can rescue us from the curse of death, just like the Passover lamb. Jesus is the perfect lamb. He was specifically chosen as a sacrifice, just like the Passover lamb. Jesus was sacrificed. How about this? And he was removed from the cross at twilight on the night Passover began, just like the Passover lamb. Jesus died as a substitute for us, just like the Passover lamb. Jesus said his blood would serve as a covenant or a contract between us and God if we placed it over our hearts as a sign of our faith in God, just like the Passover lamb. Jesus would die without any of his bones being broken, just like the Passover lamb. And Jesus said if we remained in him that his love would remain in us and it would connect us with life in God, just like the Passover lamb. So what's your walk look like this week? I mean, are you aware of this step spiritually in your past or do you live under and from the lamb of God? You remain in him every day. You live under his protection, you live under his direction and even in your problems, you just keep walking towards the promise because you just trust and believe enough that his options are always the best. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if we remain in him, in our relationship with him, we experience the life that God wants us to have. Would you pray with me? with every head bowed and every eye closed, let me ask you a question today. Your, Your head's bowed, your eyes are closed, but I hope your heart's open. I hope your ears are open. What problem are you facing right now that trusting God and following God could actually result in a promise if you would just do that? Would you just answer that right now in your heart? Not out loud, but just kind of where you are. What problem are you facing right now that is a problem that literally borders on the promise if you would just trust God and follow him? What problem are you facing that makes you feel like you're alone. When the reality is the difference between Christians and those who don't know Jesus, is we believe Jesus, he knows, and he cares, and he's working. And he uses everything in our lives for good. Even the things he doesn't cause, he uses to work together for our good. So maybe we need to quit asking, why is God doing this? I mean, maybe we need to start asking, what is God doing in this? If you're here today and you've got some problems, you've been wondering where God is, would you change your prayer this morning? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. But if you're in here and you've had some problems, would you maybe for the first time, just say a prayer that goes something like this, God, what are you doing in this? God, what do you want me to see? God, what do you want me to know? God, how are you shaping this for my good? It doesn't feel real good right now, but I am a Christian. And that means there's a distinction in my problems because I believe you know, and I believe you care, and I believe you're working. Would you change the question and begin to ask God, what are you doing in this? And would you begin to follow him across the border from your problem into his promises so you might inherit the blessings that he's had reserved for you since the creation of the world? Would you consider doing that today and this week and then every time you have a problem, would you remember there's a distinction in your problems? Jesus knows, Jesus cares. Jesus is doing something about it if you are following. him. With heads still bowed and eyes still closed, let me, let me change a question for a minute. Are you remaining in the shadow and in the presence of Jesus? Do you live life under the doorway of sacrifice, of substitution, of salvation? Have you realized that Christianity is not a step that you take, but a place that you live that is protected and directed by God? Is Sunday the only time that you spend time in the doorway or do you do it every day? Do you do it on the way to work? Do you do it in your small group? Do you just mentally from time to time just think about God and his protection and his direction? Because if not, maybe this Easter season is the time to recommit. The time to return to the house, not our, not our church but the place in your relationship with Jesus that is protected and directed, living under the blood of the substitute, the perfect lamb of God that takes away your sin and brings peace with God to your life. If you strayed from the doorway, would you maybe, if God's been speaking to your heart, just recommit to live there more this week than you did last week? to have a visual in your mind of every time you open your Bible, every time you reflect on that worship music, every time you read that devotional book, every time you share a verse with somebody, every time you pray over a meal, would you see that doorway just come over your life? Would you remember that you're protected and directed by God? God, today we thank you for Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Help us this month by learning what that means in all its different spiritual areas to know you better because, Lord, a good understanding of Jesus gives us the best understanding of ourselves. And, Lord, help us not just to be shaped, but, Lord, to really become like Jesus, created in the image of God. Lord, to do good works for God that he prepared for since the beginning of time. Let our church be filled with people who look like Jesus because of our understanding of the Lamb of God and what it means to us. We love you. And God, we ask these things in Jesus' name this morning. And everyone said, amen.